Welcome to Broken Potholes with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. In the studio with us, as always, the irrepressible Kylie Kipper. And we have a very special guest today, uh, professional soccer player, uh, Callie, am I getting this right, Fark? Farkason. Farkason. Yes. Yes, okay, Kelly Farkason. Uh, I am terrible with names, as we have learned throughout this show. Um, so you have played for KIF Orebro? Orebro, yeah. Orebro, okay. Again, my Spanish is equally awful as my I don't think it's Spanish, I think it's Swedish. Swedish. So you don't even know the continent. No, you can tell how much I know about this one. It's okay. But also played for the Washington Spirit. Yes. Uh, she's the second all-time leading goal scorer for the ASU women's soccer team, yes. which is pretty impressive accomplishment. ASU women's soccer. How long have they been playing soccer? Thank you. I'm not quite sure, but I know there was a program back, you know, in the... Oh, it was well before the 90s. I mean, I, I moved here in 1990. Oh, it's been decades and, and decades. Yeah. I just want to know who didn't give her the assist so she can get number one. We'll talk about that <laughs> later on the show. <laughs> Uh, so we we are really glad to have you on today. I wanted to talk. There's been a lot of news people are probably not seeing because they're focused on all the top line political stuff that, you know, makes us hate each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're probably not seeing some of the things that have been going on in women's soccer, which are, frankly, pretty disturbing uh, when you look at it. Yes. Especially cumulatively when you look at it. It really tells the story of a sport, of an industry that is in crisis, and a lot of people don't understand it or recognize it. Correct. Including yes. the people leading yeah. that sport. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, we don't want to get her in too much trouble. Yeah, yeah. and so let's first start about how did you – tell us your, your journey from being amateur, comp, college, second all-time leading – score to someone not giving this to be number one to <laughs> profession being drafted and professional and what's it like being a professional soccer player in the united states right okay well i first got started playing soccer when i was really young my dad was in the military and we had lived in italy so you know italians and their soccer europeans and their soccer and my older brothers were playing and i've always wanted to be like my older brothers and i was like oh i want to play so i got started i think around six years old in europe and I ended up being pretty good at it. Um, played locally here in Arizona for Acido Sol and Sereno. Sereno's no longer a club in the area. And were those um, the top clubs in the area? Those were the top clubs, yes. Okay. Um, and then I ended up getting recruited to play at Arizona State University. And I had a pretty successful career there. And then in 2016, I was drafted to play for the Washington Spirit. Um, and I was there for four years. Learned a lot, and then decided to go overseas and play in Europe, where I played in Sweden for Kiev Orebro. Um, when I first <laughs> when I first signed with them, I was like Orebro, Orebro. Like, no, that's not how you say it. And I'm like, okay, well, sorry, I didn't know any better. Club's gonna have to um, excuse me. I'm gonna get it wrong all day. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> and then this past year, um, I was back with the Spirit. But unfortunately, I suffered a season-ending injury, and that is why I'm currently in Arizona. So, what's it like? First of all, tell us like on draft night. What oh was it like? Goodness. What was it like being drafted? You were first round, so you you, you say number twelve, but you were first round, right? Well, they go in um, four rounds in a set of ten. 
Okay. So technically, I'm second round. Okay. Um, but Sim, uh, Mackenzie was with me. Mackenzie Simrad was with right. me when I initially got drafted. And ASU, they had a viewing party at the stadium in one of their um, rooms. But I didn't go because I was so nervous that I wasn't going to get drafted. Um, so I was at home. I was watching at home with Mackenzie, and I started getting an influx of texts like, congrats, congrats. And my TV screen was lagging. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, like, what's happening? And so. Cox Cable? Kinda, was that Cox Cable? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. um, <laughs> see, Chuck does this all, all the time to me on major sporting events. He'll call uh, and be like, hey, did you just see that? That home run? I'm going, dang it. In seven you, seconds, I will. I know, you ruined it. <laughs> So um, we were screaming, and it was honestly very surreal. It was so crazy because it's like, oh, now you know I'm a professional soccer player. But that really wasn't the case. Being drafted is more of a fancy invitation. So when I got called um, by the coach, he was like, just so you know, you're not on the team. You still need to earn your contract, <laughs> earn your spot. And I was like, okay. But he also had like kind of – our conversation was a little um, later on, looking back now, he didn't really know the player that I was because after, you know, the first couple weeks of preseason with the Spirit, he's like, you're actually pretty good. And I was like, did you not understand I mean, you're the 12th this? pick. He didn't did figure this out. Did you understand this when you drafted me? So it kind of had me, it kind of fueled a little more of a fire to get on to um, that team. But... Yeah, so being drafted, again, it's just a fancy invitation. So when did you know? Once you got drafted, how long in the process after being drafted did you feel like, okay, I'm going to be a professional soccer player when now. Did, I'm, when I'm did on they the put team. a contract in front of you? So I think, I can't remember exactly when the draft was. January January or December? Or I think it was January. It was five Sometime or six in years a winter ago. that Sorry. doesn't exist here yes. in Arizona. And then preseason started March 10th so I had a whole month to prove myself at that point and that by far was one of the hardest preseasons I have ever had to endure um, just looking back it was pretty brutal there were only 20 contracted spots the whole team had the 20 so we had to me and another rookie had to beat out certain players on the team to even earn a contract um, we didn't necessarily get paid for them that month we were put up so, with hold families. Up. Hold up. Wait, this so, is my first so you're not year. paid. So they put you up with some family you don't know. Correct. Do you get any money, any per diem, anything? I can't remember, but we may have had per diem for food. You and I could afford a female soccer team, apparently. I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, Kip has an extra room. We can put people How in. many bunk oh, no. beds can we cram in there, Kip? Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so you're not paid. Maybe a per diem. We don't remember. Right. You get. Put some family. Yes. Were the families vetted, by the way? Very much. Were the families vetted? Um, oh. oh, sorry. Um, what do you mean by vetted? Well, I mean, did they, did they do any background checks on this family, yes. sending these young women to these <laughs> yes. houses? Okay. Yes. Okay. And okay. fortunately, the family that I had was one of the best families, and we are so close. I consider them my second family to this day. So they were amazing throughout my whole professional career on this That's spirit. great. Um, but yeah, so anyways, I get done with preseason. They're like, we're going to give you a contract. And this is kind of when I found out, again, that professional, being a professional is very glorified. Um, and I get my contract and it says you're going to be making, my contract is $9,000 for eight months. 
in 2016, right? And I'm a professional athlete. Not only professional professional athlete, you were the 12th best person, according to their drafting, (laughs) that season in the United States to be drafted for a tryout to the pros. Well, how much of your time? I mean, are they designed where you can have a full-time job on the side? And this is like... Well, there was this big campaign this year called no more side hustles hashtag no more side hustles because a lot of the girls in the league have to have a little extra job a little extra side hustle just to you know help sustain I mean, like a little more of a yeah unless your parents are helping you out that you'd have right. to i mean right well and that's the way it used to be for major league baseball till probably what the 60s 70s really at but least through the 50s 50 years and, ago yeah. right so right. you have to have the side hustle which you probably did what training for comp teams and so forth yes so i did private training i coached um i think i'm the queen of side hustles at this point i've nannied um i mean there's so many i've driven different families kids to and from practice you know there's so many different things that i've done just to kind of help bring a little extra cash flow so you have this side hustle yes how many hours a week were you expected to be at practice and how much how much so for typical work week how many hours on this professional team did you actually practice your trade right and then how many hours did you do your side hustle so Depending on the schedule, we would either have one session or two sessions. And two sessions, the first session was a soccer session, the second one's a lift. And both equally rounded out to about two hours. So four hours a day. About four hours a day, yes. And then for my side hustle, I'd give about two lessons, maybe twice a week. So so we are, or, we are talking basically half of minimum wage. Yeah. So what's funny is the second year when I played, they decided to raise the minimum because the minimum was actually 6000 So I was making more than the minimum. But see, you don't get paid in the off season either. So once you are done with your season, you got to find something else. Um, but the second year they decided to raise, they decided to raise the minimum to $15,000. And I was like, yes my paychecks doubled like this is great like I was like oh this is you know like I can finally like live a little more but yeah I mean now the minimum is 22,000 in the league so so it's a little bit better than minimum wage essentially right maybe two-thirds of the players in the league are making 30 and below so there's only about one third who's making. More. What are the top players making? Um, I think league maximum is fifty six. Wow. Okay. But national team players, players with endorsements and sponsors, um, international players, they can. There's other ways so, they're so, padding that. So basically, folks out there, there's what they would if you do when you calculate wages. There's twenty two working days a month, which is about one hundred seventy six hours. They're making twelve bucks an hour. Yeah, yeah. Which, which, when that happened, would have been right about the minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So you have the side hustles. You're living with the family. Yes, I'm living with the family. Um, what What else is What else is like this This luxurious life as a professional women's right. soccer player that know, people should right? know about? You're like, oh my goodness. Well, also. Um, some of the conditions that we've had to endure, like compared to the men, um, like for example, once a year, the DC United team would come to the complex that 
the women, the women's complex, and they would have a game against one of like the local teams. And one of the players, when he arrived at the complex, tweeted, "You know, I'm so appalled at these facilities. Like, we should be getting better amenities, things like that." And someone told him, "You know, this is where the women." practice and play and compete um so that's just a number of one of the numerous issues but i I gotta tell you before we go to break here real quick we want to talk about this some more when we come back but i think you they should never ever let any of these women near a major league baseball locker room in their facilities i mean you're talking five-star hotels now yeah 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 yeah. or even college football Yeah. yeah broken potholes coming right back The 2020 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2021. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. I am your host, Chuck Warren, with my friend and colleague, Sam Stone. And today we have Kelly Farguson. She is a professional soccer player, uh, was with the Washington Spirit for five years, also played overseas, second leading scorer at ASU. We're trying to put a all-out bulletin. Who did not give her the assist so she could be number one? (laughs) We will work on this over the coming months to find out who this person was. Um, In our previous segment, we were talking about just the conditions of being a professional soccer player. And I think most people feel like this is a real luxurious lifestyle. You're making all this money. Where's your vacation home? And come to find out you're bunking with some family. Um, you're making yes. less than minimum wage. Your facilities are subpar. Um, what's it going to take to improve that? I think just, again, bringing awareness to individuals like yourself and just to the the regular public um, because like you said people have this glorified idea of what professional women's sports is but using social media platforms and showing people like this isn't the case um, puts a little more pressure and demand on owners and on um, investors to really invest in women why do you think so why do you why do you think they don't invest more? I mean, it's like I mean they should view this like any investment. There's there's right. some losses to begin with. Right. We've all Brad Sam and I have started companies. There's losses. You accept that, right. uh, but it just sounds like they're just unwilling to make the investment to broaden it. Because um, the one thing I've noticed um, having kids who have been very involved in sports growing up, um, comp soccer for women seems to be a bigger deal than for men. And why they don't think there's this huge market for this with all these young girls who want to be in college athlete at a minimum, right, right. why they don't think that there's these, this glorious sponsorship opportunities, um, it sort of baffles me what the line of thinking is on this. Right, right. And you would think with our U.S. women's national team being so successful that we would have um, better a better operated league um, that really values their players' well-being. And yes, it's just been frustrating well, it's, it, we were talking earlier in the show, and then you and I talked about this. You know, one thing I get 
one of my bugaboos is when I hear people talk about the NWNBA and say, well, they should make X dollars more. Well, the NBA produces $7.1 billion a year. It's not comparable. Right. But that being said, there's two issues here on pay. There's the National Women's Soccer League, Mm -hmm. which is a league that's been around for 11 years, 10 or 11 years, a decade. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> and then there's then there's the the FIFA, the international tournaments, where right. since 2015, women have basically within a million dollars to produce the same amount of revenue as men. Mm-hmm. And the one the one option you hear from people say, well, the men haven't been in the playoffs. Well, that's your problem. You're obviously not good enough. Right. So what th- these are two separate issues. And right. Sam, feel free to step in. What, let's start first with the. NWSL, National Women's Soccer League, and then let's talk about FIFA because we think it sounds like to us that they're not doing their job for you guys. So, but the NWSL, what do the women want? Wait, what they're asking for? They want equal pay. What do they want? Now, obviously, right. they probably don't produce near the revenue as the men's National Soccer League. So, it, it, so what's fair? Let me start. Is the NWSL profitable? I believe so. Okay. Yes. Kylie, would you look that up real quick? Let's find that number while we're talking. I, I am curious about that because one of the things that we were talking about coming into this is that there are actually pretty good models for player-owner relations in sports. If you mm-hmm. look at the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, where they have agreements off the top, we're going to share a certain amount of revenue. Right. So the players get X percent, the owners get Y Right. And then they have a reason to work together to grow those revenues. In right. fact, they, that incentivizes both parties to work together. The WNBA is a little different because it's essentially a loss leader for the NBA. And it's still a good investment for the NBA because right. it brings a lot of women and girls into the sport, invests them in the sport. Mm-hmm. So even though it's not making a lot of money, it makes them money for the league. Right. So, But the issue here for me in the NWSL as a person who has started many businesses is you have to sometimes invest money. So right. you have this mm-hmm. talented athlete who in 2016 is the 12th pick, which means make, well, make this to make this – you know, simple. She's the 12th best player in the nation, according to the National Women's Soccer League in 2016, right? And with that, you want to put this great product on the field. But they're saying, we're going to pay you minimal and make you go do something else, which really does not allow me as an owner to put the best product on the field in a right. lot of ways, right? right? I mean, you know, we know as you employ people, when you employ people that are making so little and they have to do something else, you're never getting their full attention. No. Right, because your energy is also being spread thin in other places. Yeah. Like well, eating's said, a big right? deal. Yes. Eating, you know, utilities, cable, stuff you, like you that. You still have to live. Yes. And so, I mean, all of those things take away. It's one of the reasons that professional athletes in the, the very successful sports are coddled to an extreme degree is not because, you know, it's not out of some sort of sense of, generosity on the part of the owners it's because they want to take as much off their plate as possible to allow them to focus as much as possible on the field i must say now since 2016 there is a league rule where they have to house the players in apartments so they took away the the families family option yes and they have to feed them after practice so you get one meal a day um 
I believe so. so. I mean, so that's ba- how so, they did it with the spirit. But so the, it might so the NCAA now with ASU. So, for example, I donate to the ASU men's tennis program, and I provide meals for all the athletes twice a day because they. So, so basically, the amateurs at ASU men's tennis are getting more free meals a day than you are as a pro for the Washington Spirit. Mm-hmm. Was it was was the pay? How was the pay versus when you went to Sweden? Um, Sweden was roughly the same. Um, it was about 2015. Um, I really need to go buy some female soccer legs. But Sweden was also worse, I well, would say. As so it, I was, I was more, I was higher paid in that league versus some of the girls just, you oh, know, wow. it's still, yeah. And, and I think people too always think like, look, you should do it for the love of the game. Right? You're a pro. What are you moaning about? You're getting paid to play a a game. But the older you get, the more you realize you can't sustain that lifestyle. Like, I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, I'm about to be 28, and I've been playing for six or seven years, and at what point do I have to be like, okay, let's prepare a little bit more for my financial future. Adulting. You have to adulting. adulting. Yes, yes. So what do what do the women that the NWSL think, what are they looking for? What's the minimum they're looking for? What, what are they asking for? Financially? Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know, but I... Do they know? It has to be. I, <laughs> I mean, that's a problem, know. right? Right. But it I mean, has to I mean be do they know? I mean, what, what do you think it should be? I mean, let's talk to... I mean, you know the league's I not think, making billions, but what should they right. be? What it, should it be? I feel like it should be at least 65 minimum. I mean, which seems base fair. I mean, yeah. you know, it, I think we've got just one minute before the break here, but and we're going to talk about this in some other things, but I did not know... Uh, Women soccer players have a union for their contract with the national team organizations, but you don't have one in the NWSL. Correct. There is no CBA for the league. I, I, I got to say that's crazy. Now, look, if you're talking government unions on this program, you're you're going to get your nose right, smacked because right. we're not fans. But I am a big fan and always have been of a private sector union. Well, this is like the Keystone Cops running this operation. Yeah, this. I mean, this is just. This is just. This is astounding to me as we're we're hearing about this, folks. When we come back, talking some scandal, (laughs) broken potholes. Hashtag scandal. Hashtag scandal. (laughs) It's the new year and time for a new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. Today in studio with us, Kelly Farkerson, nice. professional soccer player. I even got it right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a first. Um, <laughs> professional soccer player. We're talking about the NWSL, the league you play in. Yes. And I, the more we talk about this, the more I think this is a key. I mean, this is really is the Keystone Cops running this league for for you and for all of these folks. Uh, for folks who don't know, my, my family were at one point owned the Phoenix Firebirds, the Tucson uh, Sidewinders, AAA baseball teams here. So got some direct experience in how to market a sports event mm-hmm. where, you know, you might not – it's not the best league in the world. 
but it's certainly right up there. It's great professional sports. How much do they do to make the make the environment at all these stadiums a family fun environment? I mean, we made half our money off of concessions and entertainment. Right, right. I mean, it has again, it has gotten better since the past, but I do know now the women they have played half of their home games at the men's stadium so they try to you know move them into those equal facilities and then they've really pushed to get people to buy tickets for Audi sorry Audi is the stadium Mm -hmm. in DC Um, but they use a lot of their social media and have the players post a lot to try to really market these games I remember one game in 2019, they actually were able to sell out the whole stadium because it was the first time the women were playing in the brand new men's stadium. Um, Are are there things in these stadiums for like the kids to go do a a soccer shootout kind of thing or for the... I'm not familiar. They didn't have one in Utah. They didn't have one in Utah. And like I said, they had a very good program. They yeah, but they had, the, but they, they shared that with the men, so right. it wasn't specifically right. for the women. Let's right. let's talk here for a minute. So the National Women's Soccer League is going through a bit of a scandal. There's four yes. coaches, four coaches have been fired. Yes. One of those coaches was on the Washington team in which you played. Yes. yes. Um, my understanding, there's been um, it's a toxic work environment. Well, and, and this guy was actually he had 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 problems previously in Portland, which in is the Portland. which is the flagship show, yeah. right? Right. So the Portland coach. He coached at North Carolina. Okay. And so my coach uh, was on the spirit, and but he also had uh, prior allegations of verbal and emotional abuse before he was hired as well. And then for the Portland coach, they just had swept a lot of things under the rug and asked him to resign at the end of the year. But that didn't stop him from getting another coaching position in the league, which was the North Carolina courage. But that's why the CBA is so important. Um, it protects the players. At this point, you know, a lot of the players were afraid to come forward because if a player comes forward, they don't have any protection. And this was the first year there was an anti-harassment policy placed in the league too to have a safe space to um, address issues that you might be experiencing. So I, I have never heard of a professional sports league that needs a union more than yours does. Yes, I mean yes. really. It's what is come, some? I mean, what is some of the verbal abuse that you witnessed that that the women were undertaken? I mean, and we know in in, co- in sports you have coaches yell, right? And right. you're all you used to, to that. And so we're not, folks. I think we're we, it's important here. We're not talking about a bunch of dainty flowers. These are women who have been coached. They've had people yell at them. They've had alpha parents probably. Yes. But what's the type of the yes. verbal abuse that you saw that just crosses the line? Um, I, For me, what I've experienced right. is verbal abuse where you are talked down to negatively. Um, his voice is louder than yours. You're unable to defend yourself because, you know, he overpowers your voice as well, threatens your job. Um, yeah, I think that's, I probably won't give any examples. Um, but there are times where, you know, you're the worst player out here, you know, um, with, and it's just constant. Is it constant? Is it repeated over and over every mistake? So at this point you be, 
you get um, you get into this routine of okay, if I make a mistake, you be ready for the repercussions of getting destroyed. <laughs> and they're so, threatening your job too. Right, right. And I don't want to say this um, for everybody, but a lot of people that have been coached under the coach that uh, for the Washington Spirit are also not surprised that this has happened. But again, the issue is owners are hiring coaches who aren't qualified and who are their friends that have coached their daughters or um, they know of, right? So again, a lot of it, the, the struggle is how does that create a safe environment for the players to go forward because they know so-and-so is friends with so-and-so, so they're not going to Chuck, we, we really anything. need to consider getting involved in this because we can we could turn this into a profit making thing absolutely absolutely we're going to keep Callie on in studio with us our next guest john healy of the la times we want to talk about some of the supply chain woes coming up broken puddles coming right back the 2020 political field was intense so don't get left behind in 2021 If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote domain from GoDaddy. Get yours now. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. I'm your host, Chuck Warren, with my host and friend, Sam Stone. Today, we have with us on this segment, John Healy. He's a reporter for the L.A. Times. And he wrote a fascinating article this past week, um, which Sam and I have read a couple times, and it's When Will Supply Chains Be Back to Normal? And How Did did, how did Things Get So Bad? And we're going to ask him those two questions. And, John, let's just start off right away. How did things get so bad with our supply chain? It's a really complicated answer to that question. I'll try and keep it uh, as simple as I can. But, there's two elements to it. Uh, one is demand, uh, a huge increase in demand for goods, mainly from the United States. And at the same time, you had labor issues. Part of that is a reflect the disruption caused by the pandemic. Part of it is also, even before the pandemic, we had a historically tight labor market. So folks who had been doing um, jobs like uh, warehouse work and uh, trucking work that may have been on the lower end of the wage scale. They had more options. There was more churn. So you had a labor shortage at a time when you had an incredible amount of need for logistics capacity, for the capacity to move goods. Additionally, there have been a a lot of other factors sort of piling up around the pandemic, everything from the, the, the ship that got stuck in the Panama Canal to supply chain woes being caused at the factory points right now by mm-hmm. uh, lack of energy. Uh, you've seen right. in China they've had rolling brownouts and blackouts that are, are adding to these problems, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the power situation in China uh, started actually back in May when they, when they did these restrictions in uh, Guangdong, which is where Shenzhen is, which is where a lot of things like iPhones are made. It's, a, it's one of their manufacturing hubs, although they have all along the eastern part of China, they have all these big manufacturing centers. And one of the reasons that happened was you have this economy that is centrally planned, and so you have a bigger demand for energy, which is largely supplied by coal plants. So the price of coal goes up, but the, the rates that the plants could charge was capped 
by the government. So the plants themselves were looking at, well, if we produce more energy, we're going to lose more money. <laughs> so they had a, an inability to adapt to the need for power. Plus, they also have some horrible emissions problems there, and they, they've been trying to work on that, too. John, when does this end? I mean, when does when do we stop having cargo ships piled up at ports waiting out at sea? Um, when do the warehouses and the unions able to find people? One thing that has surprised me about this is that that these ports are not running twenty four seven, which really surprised me. What are when are we going to see these adjustments to end this supply chain problem, which is probably just not a, U, a U.S. event, though we buy more than most, but all around the world? What do you see happening? I think there's a lot of big forces that ultimately lead us back to equilibrium, but it doesn't happen anytime soon. Some of the projections I've seen are this is going to last for another year or more. Uh, I don't know how pessimistic to be about it, but I would say that one thing that has to happen is that the, the increased costs of shipping and other uh, factors here, these, these have to roll into the pricing system so that people feel it and demand goes down. So folk talk about um, the inflationary forces at work. Uh, there, there are a bunch of them. Uh, this is one of them. And once that starts to really hit people, then that will dampen some of the demand. So that's, that's going to help. The other, another part of it is there is some degree of increasing automation. There's one terminal in, in Los Angeles at the Port of L.A. that, is, uh, that uses self-driving uh, truck-like things to move uh, and, 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 and remotely operated cranes. So they don't need a lot of labor there. Um, but you don't shift to that overnight. You may not even shift to that in a matter of weeks. The reason you can't flip a switch and get 24-7 operations at these ports is that you can't pull somebody off the street and say, we're going to put you in charge of these tens of thousands of, of pounds of, of incredibly valuable stuff that you're going to have to delicately move from a ship down to uh, this tiny little chassis that's going to take it somewhere. Right? So, yeah, um, that's just it's just going to take time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. I was reading an article last week, I think I sent it to you, Sam, about the New York Times, where there's just a major driver shortage in England. I mean, they can't get people to drive, you know, the trucks. And I imagine that's the same thing here, um, Arizona, where it has a couple major trucking companies, and they're just having a heck of a time getting people not only hired, but who can pass the driving test. I know I couldn't. I would run over a million things of and mailboxes. So, so actually, Chuck, if I can jump in there, because I have a friend who owns a trucking company here, and he was hiring before all this started. He was hiring most of his people uh, were Indian Americans coming here on green cards. And that was actually the biggest because they have a, had a pretty big pool there. Right. They could come here, make more money doing it. And India's COVID closures has really hampered his business because he can't bring more. He was you know, working to bring those folks in. He can't do that now. John, John, we're with John Healy, Los Angeles Times, talking about um, our supply chain issues right now. John, if you're king for the day and you've studied this issue, what are the five or six things you would do to get our supply chains back in gear and working properly? I'd start with having a ton more transparency so that everybody in the system, and, and this folk wouldn't like to do this, but I'd make everybody in the logistics arena, share all their data, 
here's where the containers are. Here's where the orders are coming from. Here's on. Here's what we have on these ships and where it's going. So that you could have some great sort of data crunching um, approaches to figuring out how to make this work better. Uh, when you have a lot of these uh, ships loaded with things that are bound by contract, you can't simply say, hey, you know, we got more openings in Oakland today, or we have more Oakland openings up in Washington State today than we do in Los Angeles. Let's, let's send things there. That, that, that becomes sort of a, a glue that gums up the process. But if you could have a little bit more of a sort of real-time window into what, where everything is and where it's going, I think that would be really helpful. Then the second thing I do is I say, okay, so we've got this emergency here, uh, and we really need more people who are capable of driving trucks to step up and, and take these jobs. Maybe that's the sort of thing where you consider that there might be something the feds could do to throw some more money at uh, these companies in the short term. John, you this actually about hero pay. This might be an opportunity for some hero pay. Yeah, you you actually bring up a point that I've been talking about since the start of this pandemic, which is with everything from doctors to nurses to truck drivers to port you know port workers, these critical things that we are short on. It it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all to me that the government isn't making the education, the training for those things free for all these folks, stepping in and covering those costs, uh, just wipe out all the medical debt for all the doctors. Do what you can to make these professions really attractive right now. That's a, a really interesting point because one of the things you hear people complain about is uh, when they get into some of these fields that they're coming in with a lot of debt or they're, they're facing very big costs to get involved. And that's why you end up having higher prices or higher fees or whatever. And if you want to attack that problem, then you get at the cost of actually getting involved. But I would point out one other thing, which is really interesting to me. The turnover in trucking is enormous at some of these companies. So it's not like there's a shortage of drivers. It's that the drivers come and they leave right away. And one of the reasons that they do is because there's way more opportunities out there because of the gig companies and the other uh, folks like Amazon who are just snapping up drivers. So you go from having kind of an unpleasant job maybe at the port where you're going back and forth over these short hauls and you don't really like it, to maybe something that's more pleasant and maybe higher paid, working for an Amazon or, or doing gig work or something that's more flexible. Awesome. What else would you do? Those are two fantastic points you've you've listed for us. What else would you do that would help solve this problem for not only currently but for the future? Well, um, demand is such a big piece of this, and you're not going to tell people stop buying so much um, stuff that you don't need because you're afraid you're not going to be able to get it in the future. And it's, it's very, that's very say, that's very un-American to do that. We wouldn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> and, and you're certainly not going to say to an economy that's based on consumption, you know, it'd be better for all of us if we just bought less, because it wouldn't be better for all of us, right? That's John, kind of the fuel to the fire. Right, John, we can start a campaign. Let's really focus what Christmas is about and see how that goes over with people. Um, <laughs> um, my, I don't think that's going to happen. My family has got to be the most disappointing family in the world at Christmas, because we made a deal about a decade ago where you have to make. What uh, we we all do a Secret Santa type thing, and you have to make your gift. Well, this is why you're so angry all the time with such gifts yeah, like that. It, well, it probably so, explains um, part of it. 
John, do you look at you cover these issues? The one thing I have felt since COVID is is that this was really a spring training event of a crisis for America. And I think we failed it fairly miserably. Agreed. What are the things that you feel businesses and things with the supply chain should have really learned from COVID and that they're just not still getting? Excellent question. COVID uh, was a um, very sharp blow to the chin. And the assumption was, like a boxer that gets knocked down, well, you just get back on your feet and you keep fighting. Right. And so that's what a lot of companies did. They bounced up back as quickly as they could. They made some assumptions about how soon demand would come back that were uh, actually not very good assumptions. Demand came back faster. Um, They were caught a little unaware that inventories were low and they rush to try and fill them, and that's one of the reasons that we have the problem that we have now with so much demand and not enough way to fill it. But if I'm somebody who is um, trying to run a business, I'm not planning uh, to run 365 days of the year as if there's always going to be a disaster at my door. Um, Maybe that is an appropriate strategy. I didn't go to business school, so I can't say that's something that they teach MBAs. But it just strikes me as uh, COVID was such an exceptional event that uh, trying to learn too much from it, it it might be sort of like saying, let's plan for peak demand uh, because we went to the World Series this year for our Dodgers t-shirts and you're not going to go to the World Series every year. Totally agree with that. One of the other things that that I think should have been learned from this is that we need to really make sure that critical production still occurs here in the United States, that when a a supply chain breakdown does not put lives at risk, it's really important we start looking at how we re incentivize manufacturing in this country. So how do you go about doing that? That is the really interesting question, because President Trump uh, thought that one of the ways to do that was to use tariffs to make imported goods, imported steel, or excuse me, aluminum, yeah, steel and aluminum, more expensive, as well as a number of other things. And if you look at the what has happened since then, the, the tariffs do not appear to have achieved what he was trying to achieve with them in terms of a renaissance of U.S. manufacturing of those materials. So I don't know how you get to the place where you have, in a, in a globalized economy, where you, where you have reliable uh, domestic production. I do see a way to get to the place where you have reliable production within the community of trading partners, but we just can Confining it to the United States, I, how do you do that? It's probably, it's probably, and we we're, we have about forty seconds left here of you, John. Uh, it's probably creating sort of like enterprise zones where you have what you view as essential items for a country that are produced there at no tax rates, and encourage businesses say we have to have fifty percent of this produced in the United States. Something like that's the only way I think that works. I, I don't know if tariffs work, but saying each region has zones where manufacturers can do this, pharmaceuticals, things of that nature. So. 
Mm. Uh, John, where can people find you online? Are, are you a Twitter guy? How do they get? How do they follow you and your work? Uh, my my completely uninteresting Twitter feed is at J C A H E A L E Y. So they can they can follow me there, or just uh, uh, read the LA Times, uh, which would actually keep me working. And so I we really will encourage that. We will keep following it, and good luck on your Dodgers. Have a great weekend, my friend. It's the new year and time for the new you. You've thought about running for political office, but don't know where to start. Before you start any planning, you need to secure your name online with a yourname.vote web domain. This means your constituents will know they are learning about the real you when they surf the web. Secure your domain from GoDaddy.com today. Welcome back to Broken Potholes. If you're listening to this, you're listening on one of our podcasts. And thank you so much for tuning in. This podcast only segment brought to you by Dot Vote. Got to get yourself a Dot Vote domain. Yeah, you do. Look, you got to help us out. You got to keep us on the air. You got to keep Kip employed. So keep buying Dot Vote. <laughs> but we wanted to come back uh, with Callie Farkerson. Talk a little bit more about your experience because I think this is really interesting. There's lots of political talk out there. Uh, there's lots of sports talk, but it focuses on what happens on the field. And, you know, when things go wrong, you get a little bit of off-field thrown in there. I don't think most people understand what it takes to get to that point. Right, right. Which is a pretty massive commitment. Definitely. I mean, it requires a lot of sacrifice, a lot of discipline, and a lot of accountability. You really have to – me and a couple of my teammates were talking about this the other day, like – our lives are so oriented orient, oriented on the next practice. Like, okay, we need to, after we're done practicing, you have to eat correctly. You have to eat right after you need your protein shake. You shouldn't be on your feet for two hours post-practice, so you relax. Um, okay, I can't do that because I'm probably going to be on my feet too much. Okay, I need to eat at 6 o'clock. Um, I need to be in bed by 9.30. So you have to just be very again, disciplined and that's because you want to perform. Yeah. You want to perform on, uh, to your best on a daily basis. And yeah, it takes a lot of accountability as well. Um, making sure you are doing the right things and making sure you're doing the extra work as well. Um, such as stretching or I don't know. Um, again, eating the right foods. Pro- protein practices are really focused. I mean, they obviously focus a lot on your fitness, but a lot of that right. they expect you to do outside of yes. team time. Yes. So that is um, more of the professional world. They expect you to be fit coming into season. Um, and they also help you get fit in the pro world. But in college, it's very different. Um, in college, they really push you in the spring season and it's mandatory sessions or mandatory practices every day. Um, And when I mean practice, it's just fitness. So in college, getting into college, um, a lot of high schoolers, again. So let me stop you there. I want to ask you. So I, (laughs) so Callie is a professional athlete. She is starting a training company, Callie.soccer. You can find Mm -hmm. it soon. Question for you is, I I have a daughter who has some proclivity to being a good soccer player. Mm -hmm. She's in eighth grade or ninth. Okay. She wants to play college, whether division one, two, or three, or whatever. Correct. If you were, if I was paying you, 
mm-hmm. to advise me how to go about this and give her that opportunity to play college soccer, which mm-hmm. I think most young women who are in eighth or ninth grade still playing soccer would love to do, right? Mm-hmm. Though you have made this totally unglamorous today, so I'm not sure after this they want to hear it. Well, hopefully by the time they uh, yeah, are at the, But my question for you is, what would you t- t- walk them through? What should they be doing? What should they be doing? They should be, again, doing the extras. Not only do you have to practice, but you barely touch the ball during a regular practice. You need to go out on your own, whether it's two to three times a week, and you need to train. And I think the main difference is coaches love seeing players compete. So as long as they are tenacious, and again, um, for me, I focus a lot on the technical skill, and then in the first phase, and then the second phase, I want them to just compete, whether that's going against me or really trying to push them a little bit further than their comfort zone, right? Work harder than everybody else kind of thing. But again, you have to go into it saying you can be the hardest worker, that doesn't necessarily mean or guarantee you a prof- professional soccer right. or collegiate soccer. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's really important as you're starting this business for parents who are looking to get their kids in there, and we saw this years ago in baseball, right? You can't hire just high school. You need people with professional experience because they're the ones that know what it takes to compete at that level. Where your your high school coach may not have had any real competitive experience, certainly not at any kind of professional. Would you would you recommend? Let's say someone's got a a young daughter who's got talent. Mm-hmm. Would you tell them focus purely on soccer? Like it's okay for you also to go play basketball. I mean, this is a real a real issue I'm seeing more now, which I think's burning out kids, and I'm disappointed in it. Would you tell them that or you're saying, no, once you get there and you get to ninth grade, you're in. You're in or out. Right. Um, I wouldn't say you're in or out. Um, I would say, you know, focus. I mean, because I also, I played another sport in high school and I still was able to. What did you play? I did, well, track. She's Does using, that even count? Folks, she's using that, air quotes. We'll have yeah, that wait, on the wait YouTube a minute. video. Does that even count? Well, Track. sure, you're running. Of course but, it counts. But, but, that's, right. but that's aligned with it, right? Right. So Mackenzie Semrad, who has joined us and was a teammate with Callie, and is probably the one that did not give her assist so she could be the number one scorer at ASU. <laughs> so she's only number two. Mac would have liked to play basketball, but I've seen you play basketball, so you did the right thing on this, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I mean, you can do other things, but it can't be for a long period of time. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. No. 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 So, but so if you're if you're if I'm coming to you as a dad, mm-hmm. and I'm saying, okay, here's my little daughter Bobette, and she wants to do this. How many hours? I mean, should she practice? Should she take days off? What should she do? I mean, she. So how many hours? Okay. So on top of like a normal practice schedule, you should at least be going out to to three extra times a week. Maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be an hour of extra work. It just needs to be extremely focused in one area. So you could go 30 minutes, do solely, you know, some foot skills, but it's about doing them correctly and executing them correctly. It's not about just going through the movement. It's about trying to make it efficient. And a lot of the players, or a lot of the players I've played with, um, that is one thing in the pros that is just completely different than college. Everyone there has this crazy switch where they can just focus and they're locked in practically the whole session. 
and you know like Rose Lavelle or Andy Sullivan um Tori Huster some of my teammates that have played in the national team have been in and out um they just have this uncanny ability to be so zoned in on what they're doing and I've asked Andy Sullivan who has been in and out of the national team too like Andy how often did you practice right so Sunny said she was always there 45 minutes before practice just doing technical skill at every practice and so I mean there's so many different this is something you say. actually you hear about a little bit sort of I think it's, it's most apparent in the NBA where veterans often are really upset or, or really push the rookies to learn to focus that way and learn to practice that way and if they can't those guys don't make it. They don't stick around in in that lo- in professional leagues, and I, I'd assume it's the same in in women's soccer. Yeah, I mean consistency is key, and that is comes with focus. Um, you know, you have to be able to yeah be consistent. Which going back now, because in our contracts we can get cut at any moment. There's no guarantee, right? So This league is a joke. Any day. No kidding. So that no is kidding. another stressor. It's like, okay, if I don't perform, is this my day that I'm going well, to be cut? We started with a league that doesn't have any sort of contract guarantee for a top 15 draft pick. That's absurd. They can cut their players at any time, no penalty. That's absurd. Right. And I they mean, can own your rights. So they, if they pick up your rights, a team – like, you know, the spirit or Kansas City could have my rights, which means I'm not able to go to, to any other To negotiate with the others. Yeah. And then, but they aren't even paying me at this point, but they can still have my rights. Wow. That's... Going through the process, high school, <laughs> comp, college, on top of your head, how many um, women did you play with that just had these amazing skills, but they were just too lazy and not disciplined to get there? At least in, like, high school. Say or? comp. Say top. The, you know, top, you're you're on a premier comp league. How many of those? Not very many of them are t- that lazy. But um, once you get to that level, though, probably, like a top a top club team, you're usually pretty. Yeah. Aggressive. Yeah, everyone's there to compete, um, and if you're not there to compete, you don't. Well, I mean, th- those things are really scholarship factories, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea behind them. So parents who are making that commitment with their kids, uh, we saw this with a, a company I was involved in called Sports Tech. They're pushing those kids hard. Yeah. Now, I have one question, though, about soccer. Why don't they let you call timeouts in each half? I think this would make the I game more you interesting. You got to go back. Let me just call up. Don't you think it's? I mean, there's sometimes soccer. like you need a timeout. <laughs> no, I, I I actually do. I do. And you know, one of the things is we keep talking about this <laughs> women's soccer, and one of the things that, that baffles me about its failure to grow is that visually, it's a far more entertaining game than men's soccer mm-hmm. because it is far more strategic. The tactics, the passing. It's far more precise. The men's soccer often devolves a little bit like men's tennis into, you know, one or two people power making power plays and everyone else just playing defense the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all I can say is I work, have worked day in, day out with, you know, girls that just have an extreme work ethic, who are talented, who are skilled, who are smart and intelligent, um, who could probably not play soccer and go find, you know, six-figure jobs. And um, 
right? Um, so at the end of the day, I, I just really believe people should invest in women's sports and um, just advocate for women. And that is essentially watching Well, you know, I would agree 100%. I've known a lot of professional athletes and the drive and commitment that it takes to do that. If you apply that to any any part of your professional life, you're going to be successful no matter really what your base skill level is, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chuck, we've seen that over and over. Well, I prefer women's tennis than I do men's tennis any day of the week. I mean, and the Americans do a 10 times better job promoting women's tennis players. The men's players are sort of ridiculous. Well, I think to go back on what you were saying too about the difference between women and men's soccer is um, a lot of the soccer in America is based off athleticism as well. And in Europe, they focus a lot of the, in the men's side is, uh, they focus a lot on the technical aspect of things. So not only are these men athletic, but they're also really technical. Whereas in the States, they don't devote as much time to the technical ability of the men's See players. that in basketball we're, these days too. We're Americans, we know one way, power. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's very much no, it's us, true. right? I'm it just going to run you over. Just get out of the true. way. This is, let's get over this real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's also why when you had the kid that shows up from South America on your U.S. soccer, or, you know, U.S. high school soccer team, mm-hmm. and he couldn't get anywhere near a team, he or she couldn't get anywhere near it making a team yeah. in their home country, whether Europe, Latin America. Right. And here they're the, instantly the best player on that team. Right. Well, Callie, thanks for joining us today. And we didn't mention Ted Lasso once, so this is like a real pro show here today. (laughs) Who knew we could do that? (laughs) Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Um, You'll be able to find Callie at Callie.soccer soon. Look her up if you have a a young daughter or granddaughter who wants to be a professional soccer player or college athlete. Look up Callie at Callie.soccer. Thanks for joining us, and folks, have a great weekend. Absolutely, Broken Bottle back next week. The political field is all about reputation, so don't let someone squash yours online. Secure your name and political future with a yourname.vote web address from GoDaddy.com. Your political career depends on it.